Welcome to Season 2 of the 1980 Podcast. I'm your host and founder of 1980, Daniel Huang. 1980 is a management consultant and creative agency. And I founded this because I wanted to create a new way to help bridge organizations from an analog world to a digital world. As a Xenial, I grew up in a world that was analog, and I came of age in a digital world. And I see a transition that's happening today. A transition happening from single leadership to distributed leadership. Change of power from one hand to another. A movement towards racial equity. A movement towards economic equity. The shift is going to be painful, and we need tools to make that change. So the theme of Season 2 is really about transitions. And I'm kicking off Season 2 with Episode 1 with my friend Pam Marmon. She's best-selling book author, and she is a change management expert. And the rest of the season is going to include really amazing people that really inspired, created, and founded my thoughts, my thinking. And I was incredibly surprised when they said yes to coming in this podcast. So I'm excited that season two is really going to include an awesome lineup. And I couldn't think of anyone better to kick this off than Pam. She and I worked at a company called Point B together. And she was in the change management practice. And when I joined Point B, I intentionally chose not to get into the change management practice because that's my background. I had lots of experience with it before. But I wanted to build my chops in project management, learn more about technology. And so this was an opportunity for me to step away from change management. Along the way, of course, you know, it's part of my fabric. It's part of who I am. So I got a chance to work with Pam. And she's just been a great friend, great supporter of this business. And I'm very excited to have her join the episode. Let's get to it. Hey, welcome to the 1980 Podcast. I'm joined with me, my very good friend and best-selling author, Pam Arman. She wrote, No One's Listening and It's Your Fault. Pam, I'm very excited to have you joining me today. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be here. And so for our audience here, uh, they may not know who you are, but I definitely know that you are a really amazing person. You and I work together in a consulting firm together, and our passion is around change management. We'll get into that today. So before we get started, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and tell me about your book, because I'm very excited about that. Absolutely. So I identify myself as a millennial, but I'm one of the older millennials. And I started a consulting farm because I wanted to help leaders transform their companies, transform their organizations. And at the heart of it truly is helping leaders overcome fear, the fear of change. And so I wrote a book and no one's listening and it's your fault is a book to help leaders understand how to communicate effectively during transformations. Typically, communication is broken for most of my clients. And so that's kind of the starting point. But throughout the book, I dive deeper into the layers and complexities around change, how to help leaders understand the impact to their teams, to their people, and how to help them lead and be better leaders as a result of that. And so this podcast is labeled 1980. I I founded my own company inspired by your actions and kind of you went out and created your own company and said, hey, I'm going to follow Pam and her path. I created my own company and I labeled it 1980. I was born in 1980. And I, you and I are actually in the same cusp of generation called Xennials, and I'm going to read a, a Wikipedia explanation here. And it's basically those born in 1977 to 1983, roughly. And then we're called the Oregon Trail generation, right? You probably grew up playing Oregon Trail, or maybe not. We can talk a little bit about your background as well. 
we grew up in a world before technology, in an analog world, but we came of age in a digital world. And so we adopted Facebook, social media, the smartphone during our formative years. And so we know technology, but also we know a world before that. And before this recording here, you you were born in, is it Bulgaria? Right. I was born in Bulgaria, which at the time was a former, it was a communist country. And so I grew up with really no technology, very limited technology. And it wasn't until I came to America when I was 12 years old that I actually got the chance to work on computers. So that was my first introduction to the technology world. And that kind of positions you really well because you did grow up in a world before technology. And I think Gen Z is the new generation now, they're they're the digital native generation. They were born in a world, my son, my five-year-old son, only knows the iPad and only tries to touch everything and uses voice and he speaks to every device as expecting it to speak back to him. And I think exactly. And, and as you know, I have young little boys as well. And so that's kind of the same experience we have in our house as well, where technology is part of their everyday life and how they learn and how to how they communicate. So it's very different. And so this podcast, I'm, I'm really interested in just the, the concept of sense making, trying to understand what this world is all about. And as a Xennial and as someone in this cusp, I'm really confused where the world's heading, right? I, I'm so excited about technology, but I'm also seeing just lots of bad things happening with the world right now. We're so addicted to our devices. We're so drawn in. And especially with COVID now, we are far removed from each other. The only way you and I are talking to each other is over a screen right now. And so I remember the world where we actually talked about getting together face-to-face conversations. And so let's go back a little bit about your book. Your book really is about communications. And it's like... How do you communicate? How do you reach across the aisle? How do you talk to someone, whether it's virtually or in person? And I'm looking at the book cover. It's got this amazing uh, image of two cans tied to a string. You and I probably grew up doing that as a little kid as well. Let's talk about (laughs) communication in this modern future world. Where do you see that going? Yeah, absolutely. The technology is deeply rooted and embedded into how we communicate. And I don't think that's going to go away. Uh, but I, what I really hope that we don't lose is the sense of connecting with the individual and relying on technology as a tool, but truly understanding people and connecting and relating to people as, as individuals and who they are as, uh, as human beings. And so my hope is that leaders will look at the, the trends and the technology developments that are happening and assess how can I leverage the best of what technology brings while still tapping into the emotions and the empathy that's required for me to communicate effectively with people. And so now that leaders are stuck at home or they're behind a screen, you know, what kind of advice would you have for leaders to be able to communicate, especially now that some that had the, just the traditional, I, I communicate by being in person or walking the halls, a lot of that's not possible anymore. And now we're trying to do it over a virtual screen. Um, I have a point of view, but I kind of want to hear yours first before, before I start Yeah. So my advice would be just be real with people when you are doing your Zoom calls or video conferences or whatever it may be. Be real, be open, be transparent and allow for life to happen as it's happening in front of you rather than, you know, back in the day when we didn't have this circumstances we're in right now. Things felt a little bit more polished. We had the time to do our polished videos and presentations that, you know, were beautiful and whatever. Um, But in this COVID space that we're in right now, my advice would be just be transparent, be real. Uh, demonstrate empathy, ask your team how they're doing, ask people how they're doing so that you can connect with them in a very real and tangible way. I'm curious to hear, though, what do you think? You know, like one, one of the things I'm moving towards, and you're, you're probably seeing my studio space right here, I've invested a whole bunch of money into kind of building out my home studio space, because I think leaders are their own media company of tomorrow, right? So they can't, you cannot be an isolated leader anymore. You're basically a one person media company. And now 
you need to communicate, you need to inspire, you need to connect to a broad audience. And that audience can be small within your company or it can be broader with all your customer sets. And so right now, my home setup I have right here is I got a broadcast podcast mic. That's why the sound's coming through. I have a teleprompter. And so I'm actually looking at the camera right now as I'm talking to you. That's why I have this eye contact with you. It's a a late invention that I'm creating because right now, how do you differentiate yourself in this world where everyone's looking the same? We're all behind the same two inch little square on a Zoom call. Like, how do we communicate a little bit better? And I think leaders of of tomorrow, yeah, need to be that media media company. You need to be like a late night TV show. You need to be an entertainer. You need to be entertaining. Yeah. And I love the point of entertainment and the humor that's required for you to just kind of break the ice or uh, break the barriers for people so they can relate to you and and feel connected to you in a very meaningful way. And you and I, I think we talked about education as well. And, And so for the educators out there, for the teachers out there, you're no longer just pure educators, you're entertainers. And I think my child right now, like he's really into YouTube videos and he's the stuff he's watching, they're entertaining, right? Like the, the people that are YouTubers are very entertaining. And then, then you flip over to school and it's a very run, mundane, you know, step one, step two, step three. And so I think for the education yeah. world, like how do we bring some of that cool late night show technology, ways of communicating and then to bringing that to our children and getting them engaged and excited Yeah, I think there's definitely a huge learning curve. And even when it comes to education, one of the big things for me right now is letting my kids just enjoy life and play and and be bored. Can we just talk about a little bit about boredom and (laughs) learning just to be bored and the joy of that and discovering things that are just very normal and real and, you know, dig in the dirt and whatever, play outside. And so even just being able to separate ourselves from technology as well is critical specifically on the topic of technology. And I'm so glad you brought it up because it's something that's been on my mind. I'm actually reading a book on, I think it's called the the smart technology family or something like that. I can reference it again, but it talks about the need for us to separate ourselves from technology as well. And one thing that I started doing is every morning, I actually plug my phone away at night and I don't look at it for at least an hour into my day. Um, because I don't want to be so attached and dependent on my phone <laughs> in itself. Uh, and so I've implemented that. I'm curious if you've tried anything to kind of separate yourself from the technology or what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, it, it's a perfect segue because tomorrow, and I'm starting to pack literally right now, we're packing for a camping trip. We bought a pop-up camper just as the pandemic was hitting. And I saw this coming. I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh, let's run out there and get a camper in case there's a run for it. We actually got a good deal because like at, during the shutdown, like all these places were shutting down and you know, no one was buying. So we got a good deal. We got a little pop-up camper. So this weekend, we're going to take that pop-up camper with our little pod family and we're going to go out to the coast and we're going to spend a couple of days out there. And both adults and kids, we're going no devices. And I think the hardest thing about raising children is being that double standard. We say no devices for the kids, but then the adults are on it all day long. I'm working all day long. And so I'm holding myself to that same standard. And I want to go back to what you said about being bored. And let's go back to let's let's rewind back to our childhood. I remember being bored all the time. And I haven't been bored. You're right. Just I haven't been bored in a long time. I forgot what it's like to be bored. Yeah. Isn't that true? It's fascinating to me. I remember growing up and just playing in the dirt and we play pretend. I would, you know, dig up things and make little special meals or whatever that I wanted as a kid. And just playing with the silliest things and little papers and clips and like things that you find on the street. Uh, And I literally played in the street. (laughs) Uh, And now fast forward to today and watching my children. And one thing that we've done specifically with technology is we, you know, we put an hour limit on their iPads and they're all educational, but nevertheless, we feel like 
it, there has to be a limit. And we talk about technology as a tool. And, the, and then we just give them space to be bored. And that's okay. You can be bored and you can just kind of wander around and let your thoughts and explore what comes to mind or, you know, find something to do. <laughs> it's quite all right. I think it's part of learning. It, it's really hard because these devices are engineered to keep you occupied and eyeballs on it as much as possible, right? They, they have thousands of people engineering designed to just draw your attention to this device eyeballs on it. And that's how they make money. Um, the downside of that mm-hmm. is now we fill every living moment with some sort of interaction on Twitter or any kind of platform where we're playing around, we're scrolling, infinite scroll. There's no, there is no being bored when you have this device with you. I want to go yeah. explore why is being bored? Why is that? Why does that make the world? Why does that make it better for you? And I, I think I'll start with mine. I'm a creative and 90% yeah. of my process, I, I don't tell my clients this, but 80% of my process is just sitting around doing nothing. And then yeah. I get the aha moment at the last minute and it's just a rush to put everything together and it's a wow moment. And I think in that moment where I'm just sitting there, I'm bored and everything, all that processing is happening in my brain without kind of my direct interaction. And it doesn't happen yeah. if I'm filling up that space. I love what you just said because I think that if our minds are occupied 100% of the time, there is no room for creativity. And you can't be creative and innovative if you don't allow the space for that. I think boredom has a lot to do with it. I know I'm late to the game, but I started to do mindful meditations recently. And and I have an, an app. So again, here we, we use technology, but I have an app that just kind of calms me down and lets me focus on one thing at a time. And I think, you know, allowing yourself to be bored and allowing yourself to just focus on one thing at a time and and to be present for me, the key right now is how can I be present in this moment and only think about what's in front of me instead of allow the thousand different ideas that are in the back of my mind come to life. So I, I don't know. What do you think? What's your take on meditation and mindfulness? Oh my gosh, you are perfect. I've been seeing a therapist since the beginning of this pandemic. It started before the pandemic because I wanted to work on myself. And all of a sudden, as we're getting into this, and it, one of my, my biggest takeaways is I think the differentiation between when this, this pandemic is over is people that have gotten their mindfulness together, have gotten their kind of mind mindful health together. Because I think we're all going to be somewhat traumatized as an entire generation, as an entire planet and a species. We're all traumatized by this whole thing. And I think to succeed, to be kind of that, uh, to, to win in this future world is to be able to find a way to calm down that mind. And I have to admit, I am the worst at it. I'm so bad at it. And every answer, every therapy session that I go to, it always comes back to mindfulness. And I have a, such mm-hmm. a disconnect between mind and body because I'm just turning away. Right? I'm part of this crazy world where we're, we're seeing things just escalate and more and more information and just so much overflowing of notifications and dings and bells and information. I, I think getting back to that moment where we're just sitting quietly again, um, I, I'm working on that personally. And I'm trying a couple yeah. apps, but I, I think I'm really dedicating Equally as much time as I put into the gym and physical fitness or nutrition, I, I want to make sure that third leg of the stool, the mindful health, is equally treated as well. Yeah, I love that because the mind and the body is connected. And so it all, it, it's a it, holistic, we have to have a holistic approach. One thing that I'm doing with my kids um, is I'm actually teaching them how to take better care of their emotions. So 
I have twins that are five and a four-year-old. And at that age, as you know, (laughs) there's a lot of emotions and they're learning how to cope and how to recognize emotions in others. And so I'm using mindful generations uh, resources to help them identify their own feelings, but also the feelings of others. When you see other children express emotions, you know, and then how do you calm yourself down if you're frustrated or if you feel a certain emotion, how do you respond and how do you react? And in that process, it's almost like I'm I'm observing myself. (laughs) Am I responding the right way when I feel overwhelmed or when I feel under stress? And what can I take away as an adult? Because really kids learn from the parents. And so if we as the parents are not handling stress well, or we're not sleeping, or we're not eating well, we're setting the example for our kids. You know, you can say a thousand things, but if you're not modeling it for them, they're probably not going to listen. They're just going to watch what you do and do what you do. So I think it's really important for us as adults to also be teaching these mindfulness uh, principles to our kids as well, because they're under stress. You know, they're not seeing their friends. They're not playing the way they used to play. Uh, Their world has really flipped upside down as well. And you're right. I think this generation is really going to have to be just to be focused on coping with the situation that we're in and the social isolation that we're all experiencing in some way, and to be able to overcome that, because, you know, eventually, we will emerge out of the COVID season. And when that happens, I my hope is that, you know, we come out of better human beings as a result of it. For sure. I, I want to touch on a piece of technology advice. And then I think I've been using two devices, one for myself. So I, I got a very expensive device called Muse. And it's basically a biofeedback device I put on my head, and it measures your brain waves, your heart rate, and a number of other kind of things. And as you're meditating, what it's doing is it's giving you feedback uh, via audio, right? So and, and so when I put it on, it's got the sound of this rainforest and you know, my mind is just completely drenching. It's just like really loud. And as I'm finding a way to calm it down, the sound's actually quiet down and it's giving you that feedback. Now, my uh-huh. five-year-old, I, I, I can't use it because it's too complicated, but there is a children's device uh, called Mightier. So it comes with a little tablet and a heart rate monitor. And so as he's playing this game, if he gets frustrated, and the game's designed to be frustrating, right? It's really hard. It's impossible to play. And when you die and lose, you get really angry, and you can see his heart rate go up. What happens is the screen starts turning red, and it stops, and he can't play the game until he calms his heart rate down. And so he's learning to find ways to calm himself down before he can continue to that next level. And the lesson he's learning there is you can't do hard things when you're in a heightened state of anxiety. But when you're calmed down again, you can actually do really hard things. And I think the same applies for adults, right? We're we're in very difficult situations. You're communicating something that's really tough to um, another person or to your audience. And if you have the heightened state of anxiety, you can't relay that message well. I absolutely love this because it relates to organizational stress. (laughs) We can shift into the organization. For me, when I work with a client and I notice that the organizational stress, they have too many change initiatives, the leaders are frazzled, they're disconnected, they're not aligned. It creates a very stressful environment for the people. And by default, people won't be able to adapt to this change. It's impossible for us to want the best results when we have a stressed organization. And my goal working with leaders is to really help them understand how can you diffuse some of that tension and that stress and help people to be more relaxed. Because as you said, you know, based on the research that we know that when people are stressed out, they can't make good decisions. They rush into things. They are not thorough. They make mistakes. It costs us things. It, we lose people as a result. So the ability to really 
calm an organization as a whole and be able to function more properly is so critical. And I think it does go back to mindfulness. And we as leaders need to be intentional, first of all, aware, and then intentional to make sure that we ourselves are in that state of being, but we're also transferring that into our teams and into our employees. And and so you're talking about there's you're talking at the organizational level, and I love talking that because we it's very easy to talk individually one on one. We can point to one person. Here's their state of mind. Here's where their stress levels at, and here's things. That, we're talking about an entire organization, which is a very abstract thing. But I, I think in mm-hmm. your book you have a number of tools, assessments. Uh, remind the readers here um, in one of the um, in your book here what tools would be relevant in this situation where you kind of want to get a pulse check or an assessment on the situation. Yeah. So one of my favorite tools that I use is the readiness assessment. And I apply it whenever I start a large initiative. And typically what that is, it's a set of interviews. I select the number of questions. Most of them are under 10. (laughs) It's kind of the magic number. And I choose questions around leadership and culture and communication and potential resistance, how we communicate within this team, how do we embrace any changes that may be happening within the organization, any nuances that will be interesting for us to know. And then I do the assessment and I interview people within the organization, different levels, just to hear different voices and really understand, have a holistic view of where this organization is at. And only after that point do I prescribe what the change activities would be or how do we roll out a large initiative. So it's all based on the culture. It's all based on the leaders and the circumstances and the type of effort, change effort that they're leading. But to me, that's the primary data point that I collect so that I can provide them the right solution rather than kind of a blanket (laughs) statement of, well, you got to do all of these change things. You know, some of them apply no matter what. So we know communication, obviously no matter what. Uh, But there are other elements where we may want to go a little bit deeper. So for example, if alignment is not there, we may actually put some things in place to make sure that the leaders are aligned. Or if we have teams that are extremely stressed because there's a large volume of change saturation, then we definitely want to make sure that there's, we just diffuse the change fatigue in that organization. But to me, that's one of the first critical things that I do with the team to help them understand, kind of have a reflective time for them to really know this is where we're at and this is where we're going. And then we talk about how are we going to get there. And that's why I love your book so much. And I'm not making any commission for pushing, hawking this book out here, but I love it how pragmatic it is. There's just a set of basic, really simple tools that you, you explain in the book and you give some templates and links out to it as well. Um, this really helps you just identify, like, let's be intentional in how we treat change and how we treat you know, transitions from one point to another point as a company. I want to dive back a little bit and get really abstract and very meta in this level now. A little personally about myself, I was born in 1980. My parents were Vietnamese refugees, and so they were considered the boat people after the Vietnam War. So they left on a fishing boat with probably 50 other people. They were lost at sea for seven days. So incredibly traumatic right during a war-torn country, right? So during a very hard time for both countries, the U.S. specifically, a lot of people died. And I haven't shared this publicly yet, but I hear murmurs of screams and bomb explosions yet i was a child right i was in vitro at the time during this when when this event happened and this came about during therapy and so now i'm working through this concept called intergenerational trauma right it's trauma passed on to me as a child and i'm struggling with it because i'm figuring oh my gosh i have all these anxiety and feelings but i didn't i've never seen anyone die i've never seen a bomb go off before literally before yet as an adult being now I feel all of that. And I did probably when I was in vitro. And so I'm really wow. into this intergenerational trauma. And you talked about your yeah. childhood growing up in Bulgaria. 
Let's talk about that a little bit. And I want to go back and transfer this into, is there intergenerational trauma in an organization, especially one that's long lasting? Wow, I'm getting goosebumps here. So <laughs> growing up in Bulgaria during communism, we there wasn't a lot of food, honestly. Like we would go to the grocery stores and the grocery stores would be empty and you would just have, you know, random things here and there or the moment sugar came or flour came, there'd be lines out the door for people. And I remember that. And when I was a child, we had made a visit to the Czech Republic. And I remember walking into the Czech Republic store and their stores were full. And I distinctly remember the smell of food, the way their store smelled. And to this day, to me, that's one of those childhood memories. It's a smell. It's a sense that just brings, it floods me with emotions. So fast forward to three, four months ago when COVID hit, and, and I went to the grocery stores and the shelves were empty and this flood of emotions came back where it was, I mean, it was almost like I was almost in tears. I feel like I'm about to cry now and <laughs> just feeling like it, it's happening again. And it's this trauma of there's not enough and where will the food come from and who will provide? <laughs> and so I feel like there is definitely something to be said about childhood trauma and how we experience and experience the world and even our appreciation for things we have or things we don't have. So yeah, like I, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I, I do think that there is something there. And if we don't call it out or we don't explore it, it becomes kind of that foundation that can rock us, rock our world in so many ways. I want to segue that way that to the organization, but just to keep things a little bit lighthearted because that was such a heavy topic. You And I think you and I can probably dive even further there and get into really personal, deep stories in that space. I'm looking over here um, around the corner over here and I have probably 200 rolls of toilet paper. And this is pre-COVID. Right. I have, I've been stockpiling stuff and I didn't understand why am I doing this? Because I, I come from, I just grew up with such a, oh, in a, such a survival state, like just never having enough. And I'm stockpiling weird stuff like toilet paper. I'm never going to run out. And so when COVID yeah. hit, I'm like, I'm good. I got a whole 200 rolls of paper and I'm good. I feel pretty good. Let's transition this to the organization because I've seen many organizations where I think there is some sort of organizational trauma in this weird fabric. And it, it's a weird uh it's a weird term to bring it for the organization, but I think you may have a very toxic leader or you may have a very toxic decision-making process or something about the organization that's really toxic. And it carries yeah. on forever, I mean, in perpetuity. And you can, I, you yeah. and I, I think we've come in in organizations where we were like, and you guys are really weird and funky. Like, how do you, why do you do that? And it's because of some weird thing that happened many years ago and it continues to, to ripple through the organization. Have you seen any of that? Yeah. I have. I've seen that, especially with leaders who've been in an organization for a long time and they've done things the way they've done it. And so everybody got used to that leadership style. And then if there's a change, sometimes it's even difficult for the new leader who may have a very different leadership style to be accepted because of this, this trauma that has been caused for decades, perhaps even in some cases. So I definitely have seen it. And it's almost like people got used to the abuse or <laughs> leaders who treated them poorly or whatever it may be. Or even, I, I actually see it more so with decision-making. So leaders who don't trust their teams to make decisions and have basically imp implemented strategies over the decade, you know, for people not to rise up and take ownership. And then there's a switch and all of a sudden, you know, go and make decisions. Well, 
culturally, you've embedded certain behaviors. <laughs> and it's going to take a while for people to learn how to make decisions, to be good at making decisions. And then I also see it where people don't even want to be accountable for those decisions if they do make them. So I definitely see that happening in organizations. And I, I hope leaders are sensitive to that, because I do think that there's a way for us to be reflective on how we lead and what we expect of people and how we treat people. Because unintentionally, I think there are good leaders who unintentionally cause people harm. And it's sad. And in some ways, you know, we all may be at fault for that unintentionally. And so the more we can reflect on ourselves and our own ability to lead ourselves and lead others, I think the more we can overcome some of those obstacles. And I have a guest joining me probably in some point in the future. And I'm thinking of this scenario where she's coming in as a new leader and taking over from a former leader who was somewhat of a micromanager. And so decisions were all funneled through one place. And now she's a different style. You know, her style is more open, distributed, uh, wisdom of the crowd, but people won't, people are unwilling to make decisions or are unwilling to step out there because of all that was formed for over 20 years. And now we're trying to change it. And I said, my advice and feedback to her was, you can't switch it overnight, right? You can't just turn that switch overnight and expect some change, right? This is going to take time because you're now undoing two decades worth of just, I call it trauma, right? Like people, I think we're traumatized by the, the system. Yeah, people are afraid. They really are afraid. What will that mean for my job or for my status in the organization? You know, and there's something to be said about incentives. So perhaps this leader can also consider what incentives can I put in place to encourage people to make decisions and own decisions and so that people can adapt a little bit to this new style of leadership. Well, Pam, I've had a really great conversation with you today. Really enjoyed, one, I enjoyed reading your book, especially when you launched and excited to see you become a best-selling author. So exciting. I'm going to say that one more time as we close out. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, feel free to connect with me there. And also marmonconsulting.com, M-A-R-M-O-N consulting.com. There's lots of free resources available to anybody and I'm happy to connect with them that way as well. And I'm going to leave a link in the description to all the resources that PM mentioned below and uh, excited to have you kick off season two of my podcast. And we're going to have a great lineup coming up. So stick around and you're going to see some really great, amazing people just like Pam. Thank you for joining Pam. Thank you, Daniel. All right. Hey, everyone. Thank you for joining the first episode of season two. There are four more episodes coming out. So please subscribe, please. Definitely subscribe to whatever uh, application you have. If you're on Apple, leave me a review. It's incredibly helpful. And please share this. Let someone know about this podcast. I'm going to continue to be working on uh, season three right now if you're listening to this. And we're going to keep bumping up the production value a little bit more. Get it to the point where you're going to get some really unique information. Come check out the show notes. There's links down below. And I definitely appreciate you for joining with me.